Well, uh, I'm doing a three-week series on foundations of the faith, kind of um, what I call stand, you know, that's why I think they did uh, stand by me at the beginning of the service. And, uh, but today I wanted to present, I'm not sure I can explain, the existence of God. Just a small topic, just a little lightweight one there. And you're like, oh, great, here goes Wilburn. Okay, um, and that's true. Um, so let's just begin with this question when we talk about the existence of God. What have you faced that has caused you to question whether or not God really exists? What has caused you to, to uh, question whether or not God really exists? Incurable cancer? A child left with a lifelong condition or uh, a challenge or a disability? Death of someone too young? Divorce? Bad Christians, science, anthropology, a college teaching assistant. It's always the teaching assistants. It's never the professor. A, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. The Bible has caused you to doubt or wonder whether or not God really exists. The church, let's not leave the church out of this. And then just what about you? You're just like, look, I don't know. I just can't get down the whole thing that there's a God, you know, or maybe it just doesn't fit in with your lifestyle. I don't like the idea of what Christianity teaches about generosity and sacrifice and powerlessness and something beyond the grave and all that because it doesn't fit my world. Okay. What have you faced that's caused you to question whether or not God really exists? So this morning is really all about whether or not God exists. And it probably won't be exactly what you think. You know, they exist the existence of God question really is, is a recent question. It's a modern invention. Um, for civilizations in the past, whatever version of God or belief or whatever, they, these kind of things didn't come up in the same way we think about them. We think about a being, uh, we think we are being intelligent and smart when we ask, does God exist? But I believe that we're actually very narrowed down and very small in our thinking and not, uh, it certainly is smart, but it's a really, really tight little box that we've locked the question into. Western modern culture has reduced the existence of God question really down to a science question, which is not even a, a historical category on this thing. And by science, I mean this includes psychology and therapy and anthropology and sociology history and all the rest of it, it's as though we've narrowed the question of does God exist down to, you know, can cats ice skate, you know, and it's like, well, who's asking the question whether or not cats can ice skate, although it sounds hilarious, you know, and then we say, well, if cats can't ice skate, then there aren't any cats, and as desirable as it might be that cats don't exist, still the question is absurd. I understand this is a really, really bad analogy, so we're off to the races here, but nonetheless, the point is, Science is the wrong category to decide if God exists. It, it doesn't work. The Bible works better. You're like, well, dude, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to say the Bible works better to answer whether or not God exists, I roll, because that's what's going on. But remove then our presuppositions about the Bible as being the inspired word of God, infallibility, uh, all that sort of thing. Just remove it. Just make it, you're in your English class and it's a textbook. You know what I mean? It's just a, it's a work, right? An ancient work. And just bring it down to that. And what you're going to find instantly is the Bible is a book about God and people. 
You don't even have to believe in God to make that statement. It's a book about God and people. It's a book written by people, ancient people, people who lived in a world filled with spirits and enchantments and myths and miracles and signs and wonders and legends and tales. The Bible is a mystical book. Um, But the Bible is unlike any other ancient myths or legends. And so consider this. Psalm 42, the 42nd Psalm written somewhere around probably 900 BC, okay? Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold your face, the, behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, and when peop, while people are saying to me continually, where is your God? Clearly, the 42nd Psalm begins with where is God question on the table. So you could say it's asking does God exist questions right there. You know, there's clarity even in the second verse there where it says, my soul thirsts for God, not just any God, the living God. So it's kind of an indicator that this is a special God of the Hebrews. Where is your God? It's right there. But notice how the author does not attempt to answer the question the way we would. Does God exist? That's not the question. Instead, the answer is entirely personal and relational and emotional. God is something longed for, thirsted for. God is desired. It is a desire to see the face of God, even in the midst of tears. And you're like, well, how's that prove the existence of God? Stick with me. So my main point here is this morning. The God of the Bible is relational. The God of the Bible is personal. The God of the Bible is more clung to than scientifically or mechanically proven. The Bible's God is more argued with than argued against. God has to have this sort of anthropomorphic side to him. And yet, being mysterious and beyond... All right, that's how we begin on trying to answer the question, does God exist? Skip forward a 1,000 years to the New Testament period around 90 AD. So we were just back in 900 BC. Now we're gonna jump forward about a 1,000 years to, to around, oh, you could say 70 to, eight to 90 AD. And here we have John's first letter, okay? Let's go after John, the Apostle John, okay? Now, don't confuse it with the four Gospels, the Gospel of John. This is at the very end of the New Testament. There are letters. And this, John writes three small letters in there. And we're going to talk about the very first one. So first John, and you may want this if you pull it up on your phone, on your Bible app or whatever, BibleGateway.com or whatever you got going. Or if you brought your Bible, turn to first John chapter four, first John four. All right, so here we go. Listen, oh, by the way, so listen to the tone here, how different this is from Psalm 42. Listen to how John positions his argument about God and us, okay? Because it's very, very different. A thousand years has passed and it's changed. Here we go. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's that famous Quote, God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. So he's getting ready to explain things here. 
God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Right out there, John says, no one's ever seen God. So it's not a proof that, of the existence of God. Or is it? Because it gets to this certain thing. Notice John is talking more like a modern writer at this point. Here in 70, 90 AD, somewhere right around there. God is love. There's an is statement. It's stating a fact. It's like a postulate. You know, it's a statement. Here's some of the evidence. That's an is statement. God is love. John and the early church are no longer content, uh, content just to cling to God like back a thousand years earlier. Although they're all Jews, so they certainly know their Psalms. They haven't memorized, by the way. So they know Psalm 42. They know that God is like that. But rather than God being uh, defined and, um, by this relationship, now there's certain sort of what we might call scientific argumentative you know, type uh, arrangements here on explaining God. The relationship is still there. In this is love, John says. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, if you're a Calvinist or Lutheran and you're part of the Reformation, then you sit around and say like, oh yes, I see the transaction here going on that God sent his son, he paid for our sins and all that. And like, that's great, that's fine. You know, that doesn't really explain God. That kind of explains how we all get our sin problem taken care of, which is what the Reformation's famous for, is getting rid of your sins. Certainly, Jesus is relational. I mean, after all, John knew Jesus. He walked the dusty roads with Jesus. John does not, he's not saying like, hey, I, I'm just talking about some stuff. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Like John knows exactly what he's talking about, about Jesus being relational. He, he knew what Jesus ate for breakfast. You know what I'm saying? So he's got that part down, so, but now he's taking it on to some people who probably never met Jesus. And he's talking to people who've been highly influenced by the Greek culture, right? I mean, the Greek Empires spread all over a few, a couple hundred years before that. And he's set, trying to understand this. Certainly Jesus is relational. But, but for all of these um, other people that John's running into in the first century, these believers need things explained, you know. So more so, notice that John acknowledges that the fact that God had never been seen but God is still mystically present. How is God explained in their midst relationally with one another? There is God, but now when there is love demonstrated and bound between us, the church, God's love is present. And God then is exists because of that love. And you're like, wow, that's kind of thin. You're gonna tell me that because we all love one another, God is present. Like, well, flip it around. God is present, therefore we love one another. This is how John is explaining things. God is still mystically present, living in each of us, and his love is perfected, that is completed, in us. With the coming of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's God, God is now there. This is the God who is there. And when John is trying to explain this, he's saying because 
God, because the love is present, God is in our story. God is in our overarching story. God is in, just for all you hipsters, God is in our meta narrative. Okay? The narrative, the story of us all. But this is the overarching large one. So it's so meta at this point, yeah. And so we're in this moment uh, where God is the God who is there. So John explains the existence of God in social terms. In social terms. God is here because we are here. We find God in our love. We love because God is here. John is simply stating what he experienced with Jesus because John walked with Jesus. He knew the relationship. He knew the love was present when God was present. And so therefore, he says, that continues out to all of us. This is rich stuff at this point. We, when we are together, God is there. So, this is the overarching story, this meta narrative of God is love. But you can't make the big mistake of separating God and love like, like so many secularists do, or like so many secular liberals do, where they wish to desire to separate out the social aspect of love from God. And, and as much as it's loving, at least in the short term, the larger picture tends to fall apart without God in the equation of love. It tends to fall apart. Now, I, I'm telling you all this fancy stuff here, you guys, because you guys are being attacked on social media and whatever other you know, avenues of information you receive things from who, who are blowing past the whole God thing and moving straight on to some sort of love or whatever, and it, and it tends to fall apart. I'm going to pick on then celebrity commentators like Bill Maher, okay, who tell you that religion is a mental disorder and that humans need to evolve past religion and that it's holding back the human race, and that the sooner we get rid of religions, world religions, then the better off the human race is going to be. And then they start nitpicking and say things like, oh, the Crusades or the Inquisition or Salem Witch Trials, which is actually a, you know, a really small part, so to speak, of the entire 2,000 years of Christian history, even though they may be significant. Uh, so atheists like Bill Myers would like you know, I just come back and say, like, okay, you want to start nitpicking on the Inquisitions and Crusades and so forth and things like that? Let's just nitpick on you, okay, secular atheist. Like, let's just go right back to the 20th century, you know? Let's go back to the 20th century when secularism and atheism was a part of communism and even bled over into fascism. So communist and fascism in the 20th century, one, over 150 million people slaughtered in the name of atheism and a perfect world. Perfection is deadly. And that's why I often say moralism is the enemy of Christianity. When things devolve into moralism and trying to eliminate people who you don't agree with so you can have a perfect world, people will do atro atrocious things. So you want to return to that? Now who has the worst mental disorder? All right, let's work our way back to John. We're going to come out of this hole that I've got you down in here, okay? By the way, 
you know, just to take you all the way down there, this is, this is, this is for world-class hipsters. I'm going to throw the word ontic at you. Say it with me, everyone. Ontic. Ontic. Oh, yes, again, ontic. You're like, what am I saying? Like, okay, ontic, here's the fancy definition. Of or relating to having being. You're like, really? That's it? So God is spoken of as being ontic. Now, this is popular right now out there because it relates to identity. What is a person's identity? Identity is ontic, which means it's not coming from external. It would be within. But that's for another day. Yes, furrowed brows are appropriate at this moment. So, um, ontic is a whole uh, thing these days. But let's get out of this sort of thing and see if we can rescue this thing right here. Working our way back through John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. For John, knowing God, knowing that there is God, is simple. It is love for one another. It is the telltale mark of God. Being born of God, knowing God, God's love is so present, so there, that people who do not love like Jesus do not know God. So the actual existence, as we would phrase it these days, the existence of God is if there is no love, then there is no God. If there is love, then there is God. But it has to be of a certain kind of love. It has to be the kind of Jesus going to the cross. It's a complete love. One that dies for complete strangers 2,000 years later. Loving is the telltale mark of God. You know, legend has it that the Apostle John, uh, legend has it that, uh, by the way, John was probably a teenager when he followed Jesus on those dusty roads. He was probably, and they say that simply because these letters come very late in 70, 80, 90 AD, okay? Uh, But the legend has it that John, um, the last living disciple, the last eyewitness, you know, of Jesus, so to speak, as an apostle, uh, around 90 AD, it says that he was so old that he had to be carried out of the church on a gurney because he couldn't walk. He's too old. And they said that John as he would pass through the people in the church, would raise his hands as high as he could and cry out and say, little children, love one another. Love one another. That's all he would say. Little children, love one another. The final words of the final apostle, the last moment, the last thing John thought that was the most important thing to say to the church was little children, love one another. That's how you know God exists. That's how you know the whole thing is true. That's what makes it ontic. Love one another. God is there when there is love for one another. When there's not love, then it doesn't exist, which is interesting. All right, a few generations, about 400 years after uh, John there in 90 AD, maybe 300 years, uh, you have Augustine. Augustine, we all have heard of the name Augustine. Cool name. Augustine said this, and I love this quote. You have made us for yourself, 
and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. There is this dear longing for the streams of, of water of God. There is this notion that within the human spirit is a longing for something beyond ourself that is God. And Augustine says that love for a thing that you don't have is in, his, in our vernacular would be that's the exist, proof of the existence of God if you need that. Augustine thought that God was found in heart, the heart's affections. Echoing John, echoing the psalmist, our longing for God is proof of God. If we cannot prove the existence of God by some modern scientific rational method, then what are we left with? We are left with simply a mysterious personal affection for something beyond. Mystery then defines God. And mystery is exactly where Albert Einstein ends up at the end of his life. Einstein says this. Follow along the best you can. The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious, Einstein says. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. A knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, our perceptions of the, of the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity. And in this sense, in this alone, I am a deeply religious man, said Einstein. Only when it gets to just scratching the surface of mystery, he says, do I recognize that we are so, so far from understanding everything that mystery is the only way to describe things. And he describes that as God. Now, this mystery he's talking about, it's not like you're watching Nat Geo, National Geographic or whatever, and it's the mysteries of the pharaohs or mysteries of the Viking civilizations, you know, and we found a sword. You know, it's not that sort of thing. It's, this is the unsolvable mysteries. God is simply longed for. And for Einstein, science becomes true when and only when science meets beauty and mystery. Einstein went on to say, this is a little more understandable. Einstein went on to say, he says, look, there are two ways you can understand the world. Or understand, what do you say? There are two ways you can understand, um, um, yeah, God and the world. He said the two ways. You can live as though there is nothing's a miracle. You can live as though nothing's a miracle. Or you can live as though everything's a miracle. You can live as though there's nothing's a miracle. Bill Maher. Or you can live as though everything's a miracle. Us. I find it comforting to hear Einstein's thoughts. John's thoughts with the, the, the idea that I got to love everybody. I mean, I get it. But boy, is that a tall order? You know, I got to love everyone perfectly. I think I like Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That sounds cool because I didn't have to love anybody in order to do it. I like the psalmist. 
As the deer longs for the flowing stream, so my soul longs for you, O God. That sort of, that sounds close to like an Einstein thing. I'm looking, I'm finding, I'm close. It's a mystery. I don't like Bill Maher, his cynicism, because it sounds like he, he just hasn't lived very much. He still sounds like he's trying to explain everything with a science book. It, it sounds thin to me. It sounds like an unexamined life. Sorry. I mean, you know, this is all based on the myth of progress, and Mars buying into the myth of progress, and I got to tell you, that myth of progress has taken a heck of a long time and cost an awful lot of lives. I'm not sure I buy into the myth of progress. It doesn't sound very progressive. It just sounds like a long wish, you know? And so I'm not really kind of buying into that whole thing at all. It sounds really thin. I think John has the best plan right there in 1 John. John has the best plan. If we believe Jesus came for us with the cross and that sort of a love, then there is a love of God present. If we believe in this love and we then love one another, then there is hope no matter what because God is there. And as thick as that kind of sounds, if you break it down, it makes a lot of sense that God is here when love is present of its most sacrificial style. All of us who are parents understand this. All of us who have loved anything dearly understand this beyond comprehension. No matter what. You know, over the years, I've used this metaphor that I was taught from my Kentucky, Oklahoma parents. Sometimes in life, you gotta take the long way around the barn. You know, long way around the barn. Okay, let me mansplain it. There's two doors on the front of the barn and, and there's two doors, right? And you could just walk from this door to that door, but you don't. You take the long way around the barn to get, okay, got it? Sometimes life is just all about taking the long way around the barn. And then taking the trip again, and then again, and again. Sometimes you got to take the long way around the barn, and I just took you the long way around the barn <laughs> to explain the existence of God. And that's why you're like, I got lost back there around the barn somewhere. I don't know what I'm telling you. I'm out in the North 40 right now. But sometimes you got to take the long way around the barn, because I tell you, you're being attacked. And not in the, you know, terrible way. It's just the everything else except for the few minutes we have here together tells you that you, it's not that God doesn't exist. It's just you don't need him. And I'm telling you that if you live enough years, you begin to understand life is all about the long way around the barn. And it all belongs. And if we don't love one another, then we don't see God. And we're living in a world right now that barely loves each other. And we don't see God. And it's us who are the light and the salt of the world. We, the believers, are the hope of the world because God's love is there. And that's why explaining the existence of God is not simple. And nor should it be. You live a few more years like the psalmist and like old John, little children love each other, Augustine, Einstein, me. You live enough years, and you don't need to prove that God exists. It's just there. 
and it's okay. Lord, I pray that some of this made sense. I pray, God, that we can ponder deeply the mysteries, that we can live rich lives, that we know when we're walking the long way around, that we know when we don't understand, that actually in there is understanding, and that you are with us. And so when, Lord, when, when, when it is dark, that that mystery right there is your presence and that we do long for you and thirst for you even in the midst of tears. May we all learn this lesson well and trust the witness of the scriptures. And we all said, amen.